Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon, we are back at it again. This is episode, I think, number 23. 23. 23. 23, my lieber Freund. Yeah, I don't know what that means. That's for our listeners in Germany. I'm assuming that's 23 in German. It's supposed to be if my high school German is serving me well. <laughs> well, you're in charge tonight, my friend. Um, I've got some I've got some things waiting for you to draw attention to them. Why yeah. You, uh, why don't you get us started? Yes, to quote the memorable words of Alexander Haig, I'm in charge. You're in charge. Okay. There's only a certain number of people who will get that, if any, but we'll continue from there. You don't have the laugh track going, I can tell, so it must not be it. funny. No, no. There it is. <laughs> okay. Well, tonight's show is called The Shame Game. Now, we've talked about the blame game before, or at least I have in some uh, podcast or other, but this is The Shame Game. And it's a game that the LDS Church plays in a number of different ways uh, with its members. And I've been on the receiving end of that multiple times. I think probably pretty much everybody who's a member of the church for any period of time has experienced this kind of thing. And we're not going to try and go exhaustively or encyclopedically over all the different ways in which the LDS Church shames its members. But in that young single adult devotional that we talked about last week and played a few clips from, there were some wonderful examples of exactly this kind of thing that I wanted to point out. They're not in things that we played before. They're things that we didn't play from the same proceeding. And by the way, I had this whole thing ready to go. And you know that was it yesterday or the day before? It was within the last couple of days. I, I go to YouTube to find the video so we can play the clips. And it's not there. It It is removed. Somebody took it down because we used a little bit of it last week and I've got to believe that uh, at least I, I'm arrogant enough to think maybe we had some influence on that. Yeah, and I don't know about that. We, we have many disagreements. This is only one of them. I tend to think this is sort of like walking along the street and having the, the street lamp come on and wondering, oh, did I cause that? Yeah, some things are <laughs> and some things are not. Yeah, right. Um, but But I put the bat signal on and fortunately... One of the listeners to the show had saved a copy. So they shipped it over to me. I shipped it over to you. You put it up and do all the magic you do with it. And it's ready to go now. Is, is that right? It is ready to go. I've got it. I'm looking up at this. Is, I'm looking at it right now. So when you get to that part, we can absolutely, uh, we can absolutely do it. Okay. So let me just give a few examples, even recent examples, not in this uh, particular uh, devotional. But this is something that happens so often, it's easy to become almost uh, unaware of it as a member of the church. A recent example is from last general conference when President Nelson famously talked about lazy learners and lax disciples. That's a kind of shaming mechanism. I think you may agree with me that if you don't agree with President Nelson, then you are shamed as being a lazy learner or a lax disciple. By the way, on my Facebook page, I have a, a, a thread going 
in which there's been some pushback from some members of the church. And I enjoy pushback. I encourage it. Please come on and push back if you feel like you want to. All views are welcome. We're not going to censor you and we're not going to shut you down or cancel you uh, unless you get you know crazy or something. But different points of view are fine. And multiple, by which I mean two at least, different members of the church were accusing me or other people on this issue of being lazy. And I thought it was amazing that President Nelson's talk has now done what I thought it would do, which is give license to members of the church to call others who disagree with them lazy. And so that sort of answers everything. They're just too lazy to do the work to understand the correct way of viewing things. So yeah. it's, it's having the desired effect, I think. And I'm seeing it play out on my own Facebook page. There has to be some awareness that they're going to cause some of that. When you, when you belittle people who have done deep research, spent countless hours um, with anxiety at times and depression at times and tears at times trying to figure this stuff out, when you, when you demean and diminish the effort that they put in and you get to dismiss them, and it's one of the things we, we do as an unhealthy human behavior is dismissing each other simply because someone doesn't arrive at the same conclusion without really considering the data or the effort that person put in to arrive at that conclusion. Right. And, you know, this even plays into one of the common tropes that is used, that is used by members of the church to describe those who have left the church, which is, you know, either they wanted to sin or they got offended, right? Right. How many times have we heard that over and over again? Mm. And it struck me while I was preparing for tonight's podcast that it's interesting that this idea of members being offended is taken so for granted among members of the church that it's given out there as an automatic reason for somebody leaving the church. In other words, there seems to be a tacit recognition that it happens all the time in Mormonism that members get offended. And the only problem is if you get offended and leave the church because of it. But I think everybody gets offended at some time or other in the LDS church. And as often as not, it has to do with something a church leader says or does that is genuinely offensive. So I just find it interesting that this is a common answer that's thrown out there for somebody who would leave. And of course, the reverse side of that is that really what we should do is we should stay in an organization that offends us. That's the righteous response. So this also made me think, I do these little synapse things, uh, synaptic in my mind, which one thing leads me to another, which leads me to another. Mm -hmm. And I'll get back on track here in just a second. But that made me think of the famous Walt Whitman quote in his introduction to his book of poetry, Leaves of Grass, where he says, re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Yeah. You know, it, it is interesting that it's not just Mormonism, right? Which is what you're pointing to with that quote. It's the history we're taught in schools. It's the story we get about George Washington. It's who we, it's what we learn about Abraham Lincoln. And human beings are these deeply complex, complicated uh, creatures. And uh, we often simplify everyone in these most good or bad. Like I was a big fan of WWF wrestling when I was a kid. And there yeah. was the good guys and there was the bad guys. And nobody really changed sides that much. Um, people are complex creatures and we don't really do them justice. Right, right. And the thing I loved about this Walt Whitman quote, which I read a number of years ago, it was part of my processing 
uh, through and graduating from Mormonism is the idea that it gives license and power to the individual to make the own individual's determination yeah. as to what it is that offends them. If it offends you, take anything you've ever learned. If it offends you, just dismiss it. Right. You have the power. You have the authority inside you. The authority is not in school or church or in any book. The authority is in you. Yeah, it's yeah, it is that inner authority. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of that. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this is what made Jesus the, the character of Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah. Simultaneously so loved and so hated. Yeah, and we love that Jesus, the person who kind of stands his own ground and pushes and pulls where it's healthy and necessary. And yet the church has taken that Jesus and simply said, he he wants you to follow the leaders. That's what he wants you to do. Um, and the reality is, I don't think that's really what Jesus was doing. He was asking us to think for ourselves. Yeah, he was very subversive and very much taking authority and giving it to the individual and taking it away from church leaders, which is why they weren't so happy with him, I think. You got it, my friend. Okay, enough introductory commentary. Let's get to this devotional. And this first example of shaming, we're gonna be playing three main clips from the devotional tonight. The devotional itself is structured in this way. There are two halves to it. It's basically an hour long. The first half is a talk that's given by Elder Holland. And Elder Holland gives a talk on Institute and why Institute is good and why you should sign up for Institute. Remember, this is to the young single adults, so that makes sense. And you know, he does a great job. This is, I think, Elder Holland at his finest. He was so good that he almost made me want to go back to Institute. And I'm only half joking about that. It was very, very good talk. And I, I think he did a great job. But then they get into the second half of the presentation, and that is the questions right? They're going to be answering some questions. And at the beginning of this second half, Elder Holland gives some introductory comments about what's going to happen. And we're going to play that tape for you here. The thing that amazed me about it is that he says, you know, we solicited these questions. We received thousands of questions in response. We uh, are not going to be able to answer all of them. Of course, we're going to answer a cross section of them. We haven't prepared our answers, by the way which is a big eye roll moment for me. And we'll get to that later. We haven't prepared any answers, but then Elder Holland does this incredible thing, which I thought was shocking, which is then he turns around and he tells all the young single adults who have submitted questions that really they're getting too old to be asking questions. And that really that's something that they really shouldn't be doing anymore. And they should actually be going to the scriptures and to the Lord in prayer with their questions to get answers from them. It's very dismissive and in a real sense, I think shaming, especially when you, you're the one who asked the, the young single adults to send you in the questions, they do what they were asked to do and then you shame them for it. Do you have the tape for that? It's at timestamp 37.43. Let's hope this, uh, this plays. All right. I know that man. All right, let me uh, let me remove it for two seconds. Okay, for a moment. Let's try this a different way. <clears throat> so thirty-seven point four three. Yep, thirty-seven point four three. I do think, like, what's the point in having prophets, seers, and revelators, if which are supposed to prophesy and see things and reveal? 
And if you're not allowed to really ask questions and these guys really don't want to answer the exciting but, part of the program, hey, the, exciting for us, because we we don't have any prepared answers to these questions that you've asked. Right. Look, reams <laughs> of questions that came in. Uh, we solicited those ahead of time and uh, we were overwhelmed with the number of questions. We can answer all of them. Uh, we're going to try to answer a few uh, uh, cross section uh, and we hope that they'll be of uh, value to you, that uh, the answers we give will be satisfactory. But we haven't rehearsed these and we haven't assigned them. Uh, so uh, we're just going to talk and uh, hope that you'll pray with us and think about it and ultimately, ultimately seek the answers to your own questions. Here we go. Uh, that's a fairly important principle in the church. Uh, that uh, that we would remind you at this age, young single adult congregations, that we don't always have to look to someone else for an answer to our questions as we become mature in the church, in the gospel. We can uh, seek the Lord, study the scriptures, uh, pray and fast and uh, and find the answers that we need. But you've asked great questions, and we're going to try to answer some of them. There you go. So what are your thoughts about that, Brother Real? Yeah, so uh, first off, I'm also interested when we get to the part where we kind of show a little bit something different than their statement that they haven't rehearsed these, they haven't practiced any answers. You and I have been talking during the week, and so I'm well aware of what it is that we're going to point out. Um, it seems like a contradiction, number one. Number two, it, it, he seemed gentle there in doing it, but you're 100% right. He, he's essentially saying, look, we should all get to the point that as we mature and we grow, we shouldn't have to rely on answers from anybody else. We should go get our own. And the reality is that when you died down the rabbit hole of Mormonism, you discover about 386,000 questions that you don't have good answers for. And if you're left to arrive at the answer on your own, uh, which a lot of people are, uh, and they're just going out the front door and never coming back. Yes. And so I was so surprised about this. I mean, what are we paying these guys for? If yeah. now they're going to be taking the position that uh, you shouldn't even be asking us questions. I mean, that's the whole point of this, this devotional. Yeah, but what about this one? What about here, this uh, little comment? I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. So they already tell you they're going to avoid questions anyway if they don't have good answers. And as you and I both know, uh, on the faithful side, there are literally probably 100,000 questions that don't have good answers. Yes, and Elder Holland is getting up there in years. He'll even make that comment about how old he's becoming at the end of another clip that we have. But um, this is like a get-off-my-lawn moment. For Elder Holland. And it's just, you know, I'm tired of answering these questions. You guys should be answering your own questions. Once you're young, single adults, uh, that's pretty young. At least it looks pretty young to me from this perspective. Mm -hmm. So basically, for the majority of your life, after you're a teenager, you shouldn't be asking questions of other people and certainly shouldn't be bothering apostles of the Lord with your questions, right. even in a devotional that is set up, at least in part, to answer questions and has solicited your questions with the promise that we will answer them. Why, why have a damn Q&A in the first place? I have no idea. It's like the biggest douse of cold water at the beginning of this that I've ever seen. 
you know, thanks for submitting your your questions. And by the way, you shouldn't be asking questions anymore, but they're great questions. So yeah. we'll try and do our best. Yeah, you're then, right on the verge there being, you know, immature, mature enough that you shouldn't really be asking these anymore. This is it. This is the night where this stops. We'll answer them tonight, but then we move on. That's it. And we'll answer them as best we can. We hope that it's satisfactory in our unprepared and unrehearsed kind of way. And we'll get to that in a second. But here's the thing. Now we're talking about questions not being encouraged, actually being actively discouraged by Elder Holland, at least from young single adult on up. And it's amazing to me because we know the stance that's been going on for a number of years now in the LDS church between doubts and questions, right? Doubts are bad. Questions are good. We even have Elder Oaks, no less, approving of questions in the Lord's church. And this was from a uh, famous quote from, uh, what was it, April 2016 General Conference in his talk, Opposition in All Things. Do you have that quote there? Here it is. Things. Some of this opposition even comes from church members. Some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there's no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom, where questions are honored, but opposition is not. Okay, so there's a lot to say about that, but the main thing I want to focus on is he's saying that questions are honored in the Lord's church. That's five years ago, and he's saying questions, good. Questions are honored. And now we fast forward to this past March. This is, uh, by the way, May 12th, 2021 that we're recording this. And now he's saying, uh, Elder Holland, though, in the same body is saying, no, we're actually going to dishonor the questions as well. Yeah, you've got Elder Bednar saying, uh, I'll just change the question. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks saying that if they don't have good answers, those are the questions they're going to avoid. And you've got Elder Holland here saying, guys, you young adults are right on the verge of being mature enough that you should be figuring out your own answers. Yeah, there's an old Chinese saying, I think it is, that uh, the only stupid question is the one that goes unasked, yeah. right? You've heard a variation of that. Pretty much everybody has. And then there's the joke that I tell that's sort of a riff on that saying, uh, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people, <laughs> which I think is funny, especially when we say as the Chinese say. That just makes it funnier for some reason. But the deal is that's a joke, right? You laughed. Hopefully somebody else did. But that's a joke. But the thing is that Elder Holland is saying the same thing, except when he's saying it, it's not a joke. No, he means it. Like, you guys, if you keep asking questions, there's something wrong with your faith. There's something wrong with your maturity. There's something wrong with you. Right. It's a completely closed system, and he wants to be on the outside of it now. He doesn't want to be dealing with answering these questions. Like I say, it's a get-off-my-lawn moment, and he'll have another one later on. So In that's 2021, do you blame him? I mean... No, I really don't. And he's he, not answering things. And he's getting up there, but it's just so strange to come in there with all these questions that you've got all lined up and not prepared to answer with three other people up there. It's, a, I believe, a live broadcast. Maybe it's not live, but it's certainly a broadcast that's going out to all of Europe and to all of Africa. And to start off a Q&A session by saying you shouldn't really be answering questions at this stage in your life kind of puts, uh, a, it douses it with cold water. I think I said that before. So that's the first thing. And that's under the heading of the shame game. Now, we can be shamed for a lot of things, but it really twists the knife a little bit deeper 
when you're being shamed for something that you were asked to do in the first place. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now the second thing is about Elder Holland as well. Now this has to do with a question about revelation. If you pay any attention to these kind of devotionals, you'll start noticing that the same questions keep popping up over and over. And maybe that has to do with the fact that the people who are choosing the questions to be answered keep choosing the same kind of questions to answer over and over. But I really think that this question is one that does legitimately come up over and over because uh, it's a natural question within Mormonism. And it has to do with the question of when I am trying to get an answer from God, when I'm trying to receive personal revelation, and I think maybe I am, how can I distinguish personal revelation from my own feelings or from wishful thinking? Okay, that's the question. It comes up many times. And I think it comes up many times because this is a soft spot in Mormon theology. There isn't really a good answer to it because on the one hand, you're taking God and his communications to man and you're consistently reducing that down to a still small voice it's so soft and you have to be so quiet and you have to listen so hard that maybe you can hear it and maybe you can't so what you've done is you've taken revelation and reduced it to something that is indistinguishable from your own thoughts and your own feelings thus the question right as to how can i distinguish the two when you've made it so that they're basically difficult to tell the difference and the other thing is that from the leader's point of view, personal revelation is something that is stuck in the church. And I know they would get rid of it if they could, but it's too much a part of the church. And the reason why it's kind of a bombshell for the leaders of the church is to grant personal revelation to members of the church is to grant them the power to come to conclusions that are different from what the leaders of the church are teaching. And that cannot be allowed to stand within the church. And therefore, a multiplicity of hedges are built around this idea of personal revelation to ensure that no revelation that a member receives can ever contradict what it is that a leader of the church is teaching. And in fact, if it does, I think it was Elder Oaks who said, well, uh, they may be getting revelation, but it's not coming from the right source. You yeah. remember that one? Yeah, I do. That's a very common way to do it. And so what's left to the leaders of the church then is to try and come up with creative ways of supporting the idea of revelation and yet defining personal revelation in terms that make it indistinguishable from what the leaders of the church tell you to do, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what Elder Holland does. And now he contributes something I think is uh, novel. It's probably been said before, but this is the first time I remember having heard it so clearly enunciated. And what he's going to do, and this is another get off my yard moment for him because he appears to be genuinely perturbed at having to answer some of these questions. And he'll usually start it off like he does this one by saying, I hear this question all the time. And you can tell he's sick of hearing the question. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, here's the deal. You don't have to worry about it. Number one, you don't need to be worrying so much about distinguishing personal revelation from whether it's your own wishful thinking. Because, because if you are doing everything that you're supposed to do and you want to be a faithful, committed member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and do everything the leaders tell you to do, then you will grow to that point of obedience, loyalty, and submissiveness to the point 
that your own thoughts will actually be indistinguishable from revelation from God. Because revelation from God will be telling you the exact same thing, which is you need to do everything that the leaders of the church tell you to do. Therefore, what's the big deal? Don't sweat it. Right. Don't be sitting there hyperventilating about whether these thoughts or feelings are wishful thinking on your part or whether the revelation from God, because as long as you are committed to do everything you're supposed to do within the LDS church, it's one and the same six of one half dozen of the other. Do you have that clip so that people can uh, find out that I'm not actually making this up? No, I, I do. Let me say something first, which yeah, is go ahead. this idea that when, when they answer this question, you just addressed it from the standpoint of us members. You know, when I used to be a member of the church, us members, how do we discern whether we're getting inspiration from the spirit or not, or whether it's our own thinking? The other side of the coin, and I think you understand this, which is where I frame that question, and I think you frame that question, and I think lots of others have framed that question, is how do I know when my leaders, how do they know when they're speaking by the Holy Ghost and when they're just doing their own thing? Because Mormonism is riddled with these moments where prophets, seers, and revelators seem to think they've got the will of God. Um, I think of Adam God and that doctrine being taught when Brigham Young, there are quotes from him that he knows it came by inspiration and the people around him knew it came by inspiration only to have Spencer W. Kimball and Bruce R. McConkie disavow it as false doctrine. Um, you've got other instances in the church around race and priesthood, uh, previous teachings about masturbation leads to homosexuality. The, the brethren have over and over and over again gotten it wrong, but framed it uh, as if they knew it came from God. And then later, decades later, it gets disavowed and it's false. So where I come to this question is, how does Elder Holland know when he's speaking by the Spirit? Because he stood up and he's told stories over and over again that turned out to be just complete and utter bullshit. And you have other leaders of the church who tell faith-promoting stories. And those stories turn out to be bullshit. And so we don't have a way to know like, hey, Elder Holland, how do you know the things that you're certain of are true are true? In the meantime, other things that have been disavowed as false, you, you stated you knew those by the Spirit to be true as well. And the people who heard them knew by the Spirit that they were true. And so you have to come at it from that angle as well. Here's, uh, here's Bonnie Cordon. Now, this should be Elder Oaks. Let's make sure we have the right. Elder Holland, you mean? Uh, why do I always confuse those, those two? two? I don't know why it is, but I always do this, don't I? Yes, yeah. it's Elder Holland. I even put it in the show notes. Elder, oh, that's because we just played a clip from Elder Oaks. Okay, at least this time I have an excuse. You should start referring to him as Mr. Giles and no Mr. Giles. <laughs> okay, well, this would be Elder Holland. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> time it will, stamp. It will be Elder Holland. Bonnie's just finishing up her answer here, and it jumps in maybe three seconds early. Is this 15.20? I mean, 50.20? 50 point, I can't get that close, but I can get 50.19. Okay, we'll live with it. In those things that are good. Sure. Uh, let, let me add a question uh, that's very much related in the same same category. Uh, how do I know the Lord is talking to me and not this is not just wishful thinking, which is a kind of a variation on the same question. Uh, let me just respond to that because I've done a lot of these and it's amazing to me how often that question comes up. Am I am I following the Lord or or is this me? Uh, and and uh, and I I don't want to be simplistic about this, but I do want to I do want to say this that look, uh, 
if you're living the gospel and you're trying the best you can to be honest and to pray and and to want the Spirit of the Lord with you, there isn't going to be much difference between, I don't know how you'd make a distinction between, well, this is the part the Lord's telling me and this is the part I feel or want. The, the harder you try and the closer you come and the better you live the gospel, the more you're going you're gonna to have the Spirit the way uh, that Bishop Kose mentioned and the, and the, uh, the others have, have filled in. I, I Look, don't just don't get heartburn about this. Don't hyperventilate uh, uh, and, and be immobilized about, well, gosh, dare I think this is my own thought. Well, your own thoughts are wonderful. Your own thoughts are terrific if you're working at it this and you're trying. And those thoughts uh, will be ultimately prompted by the Spirit. And I don't don't waste a lot of time trying to make a distinction here. Now, that doesn't mean to just charge off and do what you want uh, without seeking, without trying, without praying, without fasting, without doing the things that bring the Spirit. Take the sacrament. You can't. You you can't walk away from the spirit and then expect it to, you know, follow you along, meet it, come to it, pray for it. But then, then I think there's going to be almost, almost no distinction between what the Holy ghost is prompting and what you're feeling and, and, and what you want to do or feel to do, or is your own thought to do because, because you've been brought together with the spirit and the spirit's prompting it. At least that's my experience after a long, long life. I'm an old man. I am a really old man, <laughs> and that's my that's my experience. Uh, there you go. Does doesn't like there need if if I had Elder Holland in a room, and he just wanted to stay on that issue alone, I feel like it would be a three hour conversation where I go, Elder Holland, I hear you, but let's start with Brigham Young. Brigham Young wanted to stick javelins through people. Uh, he he took the priesthood away from people of color. Um, he taught Adam God, like you're saying that when you live close to the Lord, that your thoughts and the Holy Ghost thoughts are going to be so similar, you don't even need to worry about it. And the reality is that church leaders and church members have made grievous errors and mistakes in the name of God, saying they felt the Spirit, knowing that people around them also testified they felt the Holy Ghost. Like, you can't just throw out this kind of rhetoric and then just move on because there's now there's like a thousand questions that are being begged to be asked. Um, and, and all of them would walk Elder Holland into a corner where he would have to acknowledge if, if he stayed in the conversation long enough, he would have to acknowledge that all through the church's history, everybody was duped by thinking the Holy ghost was talking to them and it wasn't and serious errors were made in doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Good points. Um, I think that, we are just about ready to go to the last thing, which is by Sister Corden. You know, I had something else here that I had wanted to read, but I must have put that in some other notes. I'll bet that's in my notes for, for Friday show. Okay. I do have one little thing I wanted to add. I just, yes. I'll, I'll read what I wrote. There's this idea of groupthink. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs within a group of people in which the desire for harmony or conformity in the group results in an irrational or dysfunctional decision-making outcome. 
Here, the authority is making it clear that in order to feel positive about your thoughts, those thoughts must coincide with leaders' thoughts, adding immense pressure to arrive at the same thought or conclusion and to feel shame and fear in disagreeing or contradicting that leader. I think it's important to recognize that when you say, look, if, if, you're, if you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, then my thoughts, your thoughts, God's thoughts, they're all going to be the same. And you just don't need to worry about it because when your thoughts aren't the leader's thoughts, when your questions in church history, your doubts in church history, and your conclusions of things not adding up in church history contradict what the leaders are saying, they're giving you zero room to stand on your own ground and go, Hey guys, slow down. This thing doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to find that other quote. It's actually from Moby Dick, but I'll go ahead and I'll wait till Friday to disclose that one. It basically has the, this idea in it. Okay. Which is why is it that the God of the universe can only speak in a voice so soft and so quiet that it's virtually indistinguishable from our own thoughts? If he really has a message to communicate, couldn't he do it maybe a little louder or a little bit more obvious that it's actually from God and not from our own subconscious? Yeah. And, and if the, if it's true, as leaders have pointed out on multiple occasions, that you should stay away from people who have, um, who have serious doubts, you should stay away from people who have concluded the church isn't true, who are talking about those things. You should steer clear of critical material. What they're also acknowledging is that the voice of Lucifer is just as powerful and comes across in the same way that it would be easy for a faithful believing member to think they're feeling the Holy Ghost while being let out of the church, when in reality it is the adversary tempting them. And so this idea that the Holy Ghost is so great that he can give you messages and you won't be deceived also contradicts the very theology of Mormonism. Mm, good point. Okay, I found it, by the way. It's Captain Ahab on the Pequod, right? And they're after the great white whale. And, of course, he's there with a bunch of sailors, and sailors have all these uh, belief in omens that a certain thing happening will mean this, or a certain thing happening will be a bad omen or something like this. And so one of the sailors has just told Captain Ahab about something that happened, and the sailor has told him he thinks it's a bad omen. And here's what Captain Ahab says back. He says, omen, omen, if the gods think to speak outright to man, excuse me, to man, they will honorably speak outright, not shake their heads and give an old wives darkling hint. So what Captain Ahab is saying there is pretty obvious, right? If gods want to, if the gods want to speak to man, then they'll speak to man. They're not just going to be communicating by uh, vague hints and omens. Let them come out and give me a message if they want to give me a message. Don't sit there and say, "Oh, this is a bad omen." Yeah, when, when you said uh, Captain Ahab and talking about him being on a ship, it made me think of your episode forty-seven, "A Whale of a Tale." So I was kind of lost. In chuckling over here <laughs> with the rudders and all the stuff that was going on in that episode. By the way, just I, I know I'm, it's a little tangent. I'm going off in the weeds, but anybody who has not listened to Radio Free Mormon number 47, A Whale of a Tale, you ought to do that right after Mormonism Live ends. It's got a great, great song. Uh, I think we did a couple episodes with a couple songs, but the one A Whale of a Tale sung by 
Kirk Douglas in the Walt Disney production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, right? Yeah, and we open with the instrumental only of Gordon Lightfoot's. Um, uh, yes. Well, what's the name of it? The Edmund Fitzgerald. Edmund Fitzgerald. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. You got it. Oh, man, that was great. Sorry, I got, a, I got us off track. That's okay. I feel like singing a little bit. <laughs> got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads, a whale of a tale or two. Okay, that'll be enough for now. Sea shanties. Uh, those are <laughs> in my life now. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that was great. And I can't believe you remembered the episode number for crying out loud. That's well, amazing. I was looking it up while you were talking. Oh, okay. Just like I was looking up the Ahab quote while you were talking. Perfect. What a team. Like uh, oiled clockwork. Okay. So let me see here. Where are we? Oh, Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie. Uh, Corden. And so she's there. And now Elder Holland comes up with another unprepared question. By the way, the whole thing is ridiculous about this in the first place, about unprepared and unrehearsed. I think that we've seen that they're not completely rehearsed, right? Yeah. Uh, I think Elder Holland has given us enough evidence to support that theory in his answers. Uh, there's not a, um, what, uh, a screen, help me out, teleprompter yeah. that they're reading off of. That's clear. But I think that to say that they're unprepared is strange because if they've got thousands of questions and they're going to only answer like four or five of them, Somebody had to pick those questions that they're going to answer. And it's really hard to believe that they didn't let everybody who's on the panel know what those questions were going to be in advance. And in fact, when we talk about Sister Corden, there's going to be a little evidence that we'll see in the in the screen shot of her that may uh, indicate that there was some preparation going on in advance of yeah. these questions being asked. But here's the question that Elder Holland throws to Sister Corden. So if we can just get the question first, and this should be at... Uh, Timestamp 43.52. Yep. And just FYI, you know how you know when a Mormon leader is lying? No, how? They're moving their lips. Here we go. <laughs> uh, we can talk all day about that one. Uh, Sister Corden, one of the questions, kind of a painful question, was how do I overcome constant feelings of inadequacy? that I never feel good enough, that I never feel I serve enough or love enough or even live enough? That's an articulate, thoughtful question. Any thoughts about young people that feel inadequate? Can we stop right there for just a second? Okay, because that is a question that really speaks to me. I hear that young single adult asking that question and I think that could be me asking that question because I have the same feelings about myself that I'm, I'm never good enough. I'm never sufficient. What I do is just never good enough. I'm always lacking in some regard. And I don't know if that's just a part of my personality or developmental influences over the years, but I will guarantee you that being a member of the LDS church for over four decades has not helped Mm. me in that regard. Mm. So um, the thing that I expect now with Sister Corden, and the reason this kind of struck me personally is because of her answer. Her answer is not, well, the scriptures talk about, you know, all souls are, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, right? Or God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for you. Her question, her answer ends up being, it's okay, sweetheart. I understand none of us are good enough. Yeah. So, yeah. This idea, right. That, 
you know, Jesus suffered for all of us. We're all imperfect. We're all, we're all kind of deeply flawed. And so Jesus comes along and saves us. But it, at some point, when you keep telling people that you're, you're right, we're not good enough. We're not good enough. We're not good enough. Um, that, that seems to kind of sink into our soul in multiple layers. Um, and it's, and like, as you're pointing out, it affects us for all of our life. And this is another of these questions that comes up frequently in these contexts, because it is something that is prevalent among members of the church. Now it's, it's prevalent outside the church as well. I'm not trying to say this is a purely Mormon phenomenon, mm-hmm. but boy, is it rampant within Mormonism. And the thing that surprised me was that she actually answered it in a very straightforward way that does represent the Mormonism that I've experienced for four decades, which is, no, you're not good enough. So if you can go ahead and play your answer. Fabulous question, you know, that enough. We all want to be enough. I think there's not a single person on the face of the earth that doesn't ask themselves that question sometime or another. But, um, you know, I I love um, the scripture and Doctrine and Covenants can you freeze that frame for a second? Um, because- yeah. She's going to go to a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is not uh, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Uh, but if you'll just notice her scriptures that uh, do not appear to be prepared at all for this presentation. Yeah, notice me. there's a yellow post-it note on the very top on the right side of the screenshot there. So her left side of her book of her scriptures. Yeah, and you can see several other several other post-its in there too. You definitely see that one is sitting right on the top and that's the one she's going to. Yeah, she didn't have to scramble around to find the scripture at all. No, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> no preparation, no, she no rehearsal. It, right, like if it was real, if this was real, there's no rehearsal, as Elder Holland said. You would have to open your scriptures and flip some pages and it would take you a moment. But um, it's, it appears that when Elder Holland says there was no rehearsal, what he means was there was a rehearsal. <laughs> yes, yes. And when there's no preparation, well, except for the preparation. Right. Yeah. If these guys only mean like not every word is spelled out for us, we have some room to say our own thoughts. That's something different, Elder Holland. You may want to kind of choose your rhetoric a little differently. <laughs> okay. So now we get to her answer. She's going to read a scripture, which I don't think really addresses the question. Then she'll answer it herself. Because it says, look unto me and every thought, doubt not, fear not. You know, look unto the Savior. And I, it reminds me, I, there was a young girl that came into my office. She just had a mission call. She was a young adult and so excited and so capable. And she was going to Portugal on her mission, hmm. which was exciting. And after we had a wonderful conversation, I said, is there anything that's worrying you? And she asked that same question, yeah. am I enough? Yeah. And we talked and I said, you know, the rea- as we discussed, really none of us are enough. Yeah. But um, through the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ and through his atonement, we are enough yeah. where we stand as we keep progressing. Oh, you know, one step at a time. And um, I think that's one of the adversary's biggest tricks yeah, is to really. put a shadow on us when we realize that we're here in mortality to learn and to grow and to stub our toes and pick ourselves back up and try again. And, and just the hope because of our savior, Jesus Christ and his atonement that we're enough. Your, your last. Okay. If you can go ahead. Now, uh, elder Holland's going to jump in and try and massage this answer into something that's maybe a little bit more acceptable, but, This is the problem that I have with this, is that I can look at this from the uh, 
uh, point of view of the sister missionary who comes running into her all excited about a mission call and yet saying, am I enough? And the first thing is, no, you're not enough. None of us are enough. We can never be good enough. And then she sort of modifies this. This is the, the place where a little more preparation might have been helpful. And then she modifies it to the point is, well, we're enough with Jesus. With Jesus, we're enough as long as we keep progressing, right? As long as we keep progressing, we're enough. Um, and then she ends by saying, strangely, we are enough. After saying we're not enough. Yeah. So we're contradicting ourselves once again. Right. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you a little bit of, too much about myself. Okay. This is going to be the TMI part of the program. You can tune out if you like. But as a person, which I am, who chronically believes that I am inadequate and nothing I do is good enough. From the point of view of that sister missionary, all I would hear is uh, in Sister Gordon's comment is I'm not good enough. That's all I hear. It doesn't make any difference that she's saying none of us are good enough. What I'm hearing is I'm not good enough. Even though I'm doing this uh, mission, I just got my papers. So here's the thing. Let me tell you one of my very earliest childhood memories. Okay. I must have been five, maybe six years old. And I'm out with my two older brothers and my dad. And we're out somewhere. Mom's probably out having a break from the kids. I don't know where she was, but we're with that. And dad, who's old enough to be my granddad, he was born in 1919. And very, very important to him, the social graces, being polite, being courteous to women, opening the door for women at stores or anywhere, right? And he had hammered this into our head. And so we're coming to a store and I don't remember what store it was. All I remember is I am with my dad and I want to impress him and I want to make him proud of me. And there is a lady, we're approaching the door to this store and it's the glass doors I recall and it swings out and swings in, but we're approaching this door as a group and in front of us also approaching the door is this lady. So she's going to hit the door before we get there. And all I'm thinking is I've got to open the door for her. So I run around, I dash around my little five-year-old self dashes around this woman and the door is too close. She's too close to the door now for me to open it up into her, right? Which is what I would normally do. Open the door so she can go in and everything's great. And I have the approval of my dad. But I don't do that because I can't because it would smack her in the face. So instead of that, I dash around in front of her and thinking quickly, I push the door in and I hold the door open from the inside and she goes walking in and I don't know if she said thank you, but she goes walking in and now come my dad and my two older brothers and my dad let me know in no uncertain terms how upset he was with me for not holding the door open for this lady in the way that he had wanted me to hold the door open for this lady. And I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed by that. I did not have a voice to be able to explain to him what it was I was doing or what I was thinking. All I could comprehend was that I had tried to do what my dad wanted me to do. And my dad got mad at me for doing it because he didn't understand what was going on. And, um, so, I mean, you talk about Elder Holland asking for questions to be submitted and then chastising people for submitting the questions. Yeah, 
that that strikes me on a very fundamental basis. Now, looking back, that was a very uh, formative experience. What a little tiny story. What a stupid story that is, right? In the overall scheme of things and what an impact it has had on my life. I mean, I think about all the horrible things that happen to kids. And, you know, so much worse things happen to kids. Kids get molested. And then I thought, I actually thought this, but I thought, oh, well, crap, I got molested as a kid. <laughs> and I talked about when I was 10 years old, right? I got molested by some handyman around the apartments for crying out loud. And I tell that in a, a podcast from a year ago. And I thought, yeah, I got, I got uh, molested as a kid. But the strange thing is, is that being molested as a kid, to me, didn't have anywhere near the impact on me as this little incident in front of the store with my dad and this lady and the door. So I go on in my life, right? And we've got all these things that happen in uh, Mormonism, tangential to Mormonism, that just tend to me to reinforce this idea that I have of my own lack of self-worth. And I'm not going to get into all those stories. Believe me, if, if I did, uh, you would probably agree with me that I don't have a lot, or at least I have reason to not have a lot of self-worth. Um, like Macbeth, I have supped full with horrors, but this is not the time or the place to talk about them. I will say, however, that, let me go back to my, uh, my notes here. And, and let me jump in for just a yeah. second, which is what you're expressing that this incident with your dad, you know, you, you were trying to do the right thing. Your dad misunderstood what your motives were because we can never get inside somebody's head and whatever the body language of that incident looked like it he interpreted that body language as you were being um rude right yes. and so you feel <clears throat> you feel this deep shame and you feel hurt you feel misunderstood and i can't help but sense like in the church when all of you lazy learners when all of you read too much and you thought too hard and you wrestled too long and you lost sleep at night and you shed tears and you wanted nothing more than Mormonism to be true. And then your, your family, your ward members and your church leaders look at you and they misjudge your motives. They misjudge your effort. They misjudge your body language. And it's that same kind of shame and hurt and misunderstanding that occurs. And, and I think come hell or high water, we've all got to put a foot down and say, I'm not, I'm not the lazy learner here. I busted my ass. I spent every moment away from the three hour block reading, thinking, talking about, trying to be the best damn Mormon I could be. And it just didn't add up. And nobody gets to tell somebody else's story. Your dad jumped in telling your story. It's where the hurt comes from. You had a story in your head about what you were doing. And, and your dad had a different story in his head about what you were doing. And often in the church, there's a different story about who we are all of us who have left or who have serious questions, who have doubts, who have concluded that many parts, if not all of the parts, are bullcrap. And I'm tired of these insiders telling my story, and I'm tired of them telling yours. And it's that same kind of hurt that you experienced. Hmm. 
I want to hasten to add something here, which I really think I need to, is that my dad was a great dad. Yeah. You know, he was a great dad. And I have no, uh, every time I got the belt from him, I deserved it. And I deserved it more than I got it. <laughs> but he was a great, great dad. And so, but this was just one of those things that happens. Just a tiny little thing that has a massive influence on a person's life. And I think everybody probably has these kinds of things. I do want to comment a little bit more about what Sister Corden said and get into some other experiences. But mainly, she does cover it by saying none of us are good enough without Jesus, right? Without Jesus. And this is the whole idea that in Mormon lingo, what that means is none of us is good enough without the church. Because Jesus, in this instance, becomes the equivalent of the church. It is only in and through the church that the priesthood ordinances of salvation and exaltation are performed. The covenant path, right? It's only through that that you walk the covenant path to get back to God. It's only available in the LDS church. These ideas about letting God prevail, which we're hearing throughout General Conference since uh, President Nelson made it popular not that long ago, letting God prevail in our lives. All just different ways of saying that we have to do what the church leaders tell us to do in order to return to God. But of course, the problem is nobody can do everything that we're supposed to do within Mormonism. I mean, let's just look at baptism, right? Here's the idea about baptism too. This is another way that the church is equated with Jesus because when we're baptized, we are not only baptized for the remission of sins, right? It's a twofer kind of ordinance. We're baptized for the remission of our sins. And what else, Bill? <clears throat> You're gonna have to, I'm trying to go through the comments. You're going to have to say that. Say it one more time and I'll fill in the blank. That's okay. We're not only baptized for remission of our sins when we're baptized. What else happens when we're baptized? We are, well, if you're a convert, your names go on the record of the church. And you're baptized. That's right. Because you are baptized as a member of the church. Yeah. That's how we become a member of the church in the LDS church is through baptism. So we're not just being baptized for remission of our sins. We're being baptized into the Lord's church. And we hear it very frequently in uh, LDS parlance that we come unto Jesus, right? By being baptized into his church. Yeah. It's it, the same thing. Yeah. And it's this idea that, you know, the missionaries came into my home and they told me I was dirty. I was filthy. And then they told me they had the right bathwater to get me cleaned up. Right. Like it's this idea that the church presents to you a problem and then it tells you it's the only one who has the solution to it. And there are others in the in the comments that are kind of pointing out that same kind of paradigm. Oh, good. I, I had thought that I wasn't the only person who's experienced this kind of thing in the LDS church. This is why I wanted to talk a little bit about it and maybe get a little bit more personal than I usually do. But there's that idea of baptism. There's a, there's this idea of inferiority uh, among members of the church. Uh, inferiority, shaming, it's what Mormons do best. No matter how much you do as a member of the church, it's never good enough. Because yeah. either you didn't do what you were trying to do perfectly, or there are always other things that you could be doing, that you should be doing, but that you're not doing. There's so many things you're supposed to do in Mormonism, you can never do everything. Which is part of maybe, I don't know, is that how it's planned to be? I don't know if it's planned to be that way, but it certainly is that way. At least that's been my experience. And of course, this only happens if you take Mormonism seriously. Only if you're committed to Mormonism do you get caught in this 
mind trap. I'll call it a mind trap, okay? We'll try and keep this friendly for audiences with uh, children as well. And your mission, here's this gal who has her mission call. Now I went on a mission to Japan and I had this experience and I'll bet every single person who's ever served a mission has had this experience. You go out, you sacrifice two years of your life in the prime of your life to go out and teach the gospel of the LDS church, not only free of charge, but you're going to pay for it at your own expense, right? You think, well, maybe that's good enough, but no, <laughs> no, it's not good enough because you got to go out there and work your arse off. And these are incredibly long hours and you're supposed to be out there hitting the bricks, ringing the doorbells, making the contacts, teaching the lessons by the book. Now, here's the thing, okay? Every missionary's heard this. Not only are you supposed to teach everybody that is prepared for you to teach, right? Because there's this idea that there are certain people out there who uh, they're depending on you personally to bring them the gospel message so they can join the church. But if there's anybody out there that you were supposed to find and teach the gospel to and baptize who does not get taught or found because you weren't working as hard as you could have, then that's on you. Hmm. Have you ever heard that, Bill? Yeah, yeah. And I'm it, it draws a connection for me, which is when people when people used to in the first half of life, I'm Mormon, I'm trying to be the best Mormon I can, and people would I would hear that phrase like, you're enough, you're good enough. And I used to go like, oh man, we shouldn't say that to people. People aren't good enough. They need the Savior. They need Jesus Christ. And as I've gotten older, I'm 42 years old now. I think so. I'm, I kind of lose track of my birthday at this point. But I think I'm 42 years old. And when I hear somebody go, you're enough, it now feels like the healthiest thing we can tell other human beings rather than people feeling like they're they're less than or broken or something's wrong with them or there's not enough in them to to be whole. Like I think most of us, minus a few sociopaths and serial killers, um, I think most of us should get more. You're enough. Well, look, I'm not the um, the guru that you are. And I'm not saying that facetiously when it comes to these kinds of things, because you had entire podcasts and read books and interview people on this subject and related subjects. But I think that the two things that people need the most other than food and shelter are number one, to be known by another for who they really are, mm. which we will uh, die to prevent others from knowing who we really are. Yeah, vulnerability and authenticity, yes. And then to be accepted. Yeah, to belong. For who, fitting yes. in. for who we really are. Yeah. And when you find those two things, when you find spaces where you can be vulnerable, transparent, authentic, and you find spaces where you can... Um, where you can belong instead of compromising and fitting in, then a lot of the trauma that you're carried all your life will just be allowed to be set down and you can, you can move into spaces where you become much healthier and your growth becomes much more dynamic. Yeah. So um, let me go ahead and say, you know, Within Mormonism, there's a passage of scripture that is frequently quoted, 2 Nephi 25, 23. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know 
that it is by grace that we are saved. Drum roll, please. Yeah. After yeah. all we can do. Right. And I know that Stephen Robinson and others have tried to massage that into what I think is probably a better reading and probably more true to the text, that it doesn't mean it literally the way it's commonly understood and taught. But I will also tell you that that memo has not gotten down to the rank and file membership of the church right. who still understand it to be this way. And of course, when you think about it for five seconds, you realize that that's an impossibility because nobody can do all that they can do. Mm, no, nobody can do all they can do. Isn't no that funny? One, no one is ever doing all they can do. You, you can't even for 20 minutes do all you can do. Like none of us do. There's always something more. Could and, and Brad Wilcox does this, right? Like you could bake another thing of bread. You could go talk to another homeless guy. You could sing songs at another five minutes at the hospital. Like you can always do more. You can always do more, which means that nobody does all they can do, which means, well, I guess everybody's screwed. Yeah. Because according to the straightforward reading and common interpretation, it's only after you do all you can do that Christ's grace will kick in to make up the difference. And by that standard, by the way, when you look at New Testament Jesus, how often do the people surround him and he gets away? He's like, I can't do this today. He gets in the boat and travels across, across the, the, the sea. Um, Jesus himself didn't do all he could do. Right? Ah. Like he <laughs> Good point. He could have Good point. minutes and talked to somebody. He could have answered more questions. He could have helped another person. And there are times where he escapes because he thinks self-care is more important than spending five more minutes talking to the people around him. Right. So like I say, this whole idea is baked into uh, Mormonism. This idea that everybody, that nobody's good enough, that everybody is lacking and insufficient. Um, I told you about a uh, story about my dad at the store in Waco. Let me tell you about uh, this. I'm a small fish in a small pond, both podcasting and as a defense attorney. Okay. But I have had the privilege of co-counseling a very high profile murder case about a decade ago with one of the biggest defense attorneys in this state. And in fact, known up and down uh, the Western seacoast and even represented Ted Bundy at one point. He's just a fabulous attorney and he's just very, uh, he has a great flair to him and he's very uh, assured of himself and very um, confident. And so we had gone through this whole trial. And of course I got to know him a little bit going through the trial, had a lot of fun, if you can, if you can call it fun. And at some point after all this was over, we're talking on the phone and this attorney who I'll call David, okay, we're getting kind of personal and we're talking about each other personally now, not just about the law. And he says, Radio Free Mormon, what do you think of me? And without even thinking, I shot back, well, I think that you're a person who is deeply insecure, but you cover it up with a show of bravado. And there was a pause on the other end and you could almost hear his jaw hit the floor. And he says, how did you know? Mm. And I said, because I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And having, by the way, having gotten to know you, you know, I've met you in person three times now and we spent a little bit of time together when you were here in St. George. And 
you you come off and we had this conversation you come off as charismatic and you're witty and you're you're you've got photographic memory about so many things and you're if somebody watches you I, you see this person in jubilee you see this person who's thrilled and as you're pointing out like you're also trying to fit in and you're trying to be accepted and you're trying to feel good about yourself and it's all this messaging not just mormonism it's it's our parents it's our it's our culture it's our school systems but I think we ought to grant, no matter how people appear to us, we ought to recognize that all humans are trying to fit in. We're all trying to find our place. We're all trying to be seen and accepted. And we're all trying to show a little more of ourselves without feeling shame and being embarrassed. Mm, yes. And my, my problem is, is that, of course, I want to be accepted. We all want to be accepted. But I'm a person who wants to be accepted who will never believe that yeah, he's accepted anywhere. Handsome too, by the way. I'm sorry, what? I, he, he's right. I forgot to also say you're devish, devilishly handsome as well. Oh, well, some things go without saying. I see from you and, and I forgot to mention him. <laughs> I didn't see that because I got my notes up here. Um, thank you, whoever you are. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can say uh, some things go without saying, right? And that's funny. But, of course, that's not what I believe. Right. Right. So, um, and this is, this, this gets into Robin Williams, Robin Williams, just manic, funny, laugh out loud, always the life of the party, always the center of attention. At least I assume he is. I only saw him on stage. I didn't know him personally. Right. But I know what I've read about him. And then a few years ago, he kills himself yeah. and everybody's going, how does the guy who is so funny, who is just laughing his way through life, making everybody in the world laugh at him and making the world a better place for being in it. And is so appreciated and so loved. How does he kill himself? What is going on? Do you remember the shock that people had over that? Yeah, I think it's hard to picture Robin Williams walking into any room and not getting the validation that all humans are craving, mm -hmm. right? He would walk into a room and at a party or a get together or whatever it is. And I'm sure everybody walks up because everybody's going to want to talk to Robin Williams. Everybody's going to want to uh, have a little word with him. And yet these famous people that we think couldn't be couldn't be any happier the way they, they look like they're living life. The reality is that many of them have kind of dark spots uh, as well. Yes, and he killed himself. People are going crazy saying, why did he do it? And I'm thinking, it's okay, Robin. I get it. I understand. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Now, I'm not trying to make this all dark or anything, but it's getting there. So we'll try and bring it up a little bit after I quote from uh, Edgar Allan Poe here. Because Ed, Edgar Allan Poe, he's a, he was a great writer. I think he did really wonderful poetry in some instances, some not so good. But my very favorite piece by him is not The Raven. It's not Annabelle Lee. Um, it's called Alone. And I'm not going to do the whole thing. It's not that long. It's all really very, very good. Just the first part. Because it speaks so much to me. And I think it'll speak to a lot of people. But when... He writes this and I read it. I feel like he's talking directly to me. That's why I identify it with it so much and why I appreciate it so much and why I've committed it to memory. And before you read it, I'm just going to yeah. put the banner up because this is a good spot. I think this okay. is where we're concluding. Uh, I'll put the banner up and uh, folks can call in 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST. Oh, sorry. Wait, no, no, fist. There it is. Fist. A delayed fist. That's all right. Four, three, five, two hundred, three, four, seven, eight. And uh, I'll let you read the poem. I'll mute my mic and I'll try to grab a phone call here. 
Okay, I'll try and quote it, okay? I don't even have it in front of me. This is without a net, okay? Just the first part. It goes like this. From childhood's hour, by the way, a year ago, when I was doing that whole spate of podcasts, I named one of them from childhood's hour. It was a hearkening back to this poem. I can't remember what the podcast was about, but it started. It was titled From Childhood's Hour. It's the first lines from this. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source, I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. So that's the first part of the poem. Does that strike you at all, Bill? Um, sorry, I was taking a phone call. So <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You, you're doing all this stuff, and I'm just sitting here reciting poetry. Yeah, I have it here. I think I think we're all bumping into each other in life and yet none of us feel seen. And I think there's parts of this that are kind of kind of seeing that, right? Yes. Where I have not seen. Yeah, I, I, I pick up on the message. And so I will conclude with something I think I said before out of order. But we get this answer from Sister Corden about, oh, 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 before we do this. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let me conclude it. Then we've got to play that commercial that I found today, okay? Um, this is the true answer that she's giving. This is the correct Mormon answer that we're never good enough. And this is why Mormons such as myself, or at least a large reason why, I tend to suffer from feelings of inadequacy. If we take it seriously, if we take Mormonism seriously, then we suffer from we can suffer from feelings of inadequacy. If we don't take it seriously, then who the heck cares? And maybe my biggest fault, Bill, what ultimately led me out of the church is that I took it seriously. So do we have that commercial? Because this is the commercial that made me think that here's a sister missionary who's coming in. Uh, <laughs> sister Gordon, I got my mission call. By the way, am I good enough? This is from a church commercial from the 1970s. It was really fun. We played games and open presents, and I got That's this. nice, dear, but could you tell me about it later when my show's over? You know, cold. Daddy, I went to Vicky's party today, and it was really a lot of fun. We played all kinds of games. Yeah. We had ice cream. We played I Had a Little Doggy. That's my Susie. Do you want to know what I got? Can I tell you what I did today? Children can go to the dogs when families don't listen. Listening is the beginning of understanding. Oh, victory for Satan. <laughs> did you see it there? <laughs> it said Mormon after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By the way, that was a great commercial, and it was almost right on point. It was a little bit off. I had tried to find the commercial of the little boy who comes running into the house and slams the screen door shut and says, dad, dad, yelling upstairs, I got an A on my test. And the dad upstairs say, says, haven't I told you quit banging the door, you little so-and-so? Uh, that one was actually a little bit closer, but I couldn't find that one anywhere. So we went with this one. I like this one just the same. Yeah, we we are often through our body language and our 
um, our words contributing to people's um, feelings of uh, insecurity, feelings of uh, low self-esteem or diminished worth, and, and the church isn't doing anybody any favors in that area. No, no, it is, it is baked into the system and it wires us to feel uh, inferior, never good enough because there's always something else we could be doing, something else we could be doing better. And my gosh, it's not just for uh, generations of family history. That's the old school. Now let's go as far back as you possibly can, which is a long, long way. And the work is never done, Bill. The work is never done. Never done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a bunch. Are uh, are you ready for phone calls? Absolutely. Thank you for putting up with me. No, no, no. This was I. I really appreciate the episode. I really connected with um, a lot of human behavior and some of the shadow mechanisms that we all use. That the church is certainly great at using, but that we're all using to some degree. And I think this episode's a reminder to all of us uh, to be kinder to each other. Um, our first phone call is Phil. Phil, you are on the air Mormonism live with radio free Mormon, uh, and myself, Bill real. What is on your mind tonight, my friend? Do you mind if I jump back to Robin Williams real quick? Please. Guys? Yeah. So, uh, I have a little sister who, when, when he died, when he, uh, when he committed suicide, she was really affected. And so I've, I've kind of watched that a little closer than perhaps some people have. And not too long ago, Somebody, I think it was his wife, opened up uh, about his death, where um, it turned out he had Louis Body's um, dementia, and uh, I, I don't remember if it was an article or if it was a, a, a mini documentary I watched on him, where basically he said um, that the thing he feared the most was losing who he was, and that 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 disease actually contributed essentially to that, and, and his his wife. Um, attributes his death to that disease yeah. more than uh, a, a depression. And when you talk about someone like him and the presence that he had and the impact he had on people's lives, and then for him to go through something that essentially ripped out his identity uh, it, within his own physical brain, I feel like there's a level of empathy that I now have for him that, that I already had, you know, with, with that in and of itself, but especially going through, whatever you want to call it, a faith transition, a faith crisis, a trust crisis, whatever you want to call it, feeling like you lose so much of what identified you as who you were. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle to rebuild that um, that sense of self-worth after going through something like that. Luckily, it's not a, a, a diagnosis where you can't recover from it. I think that's half the reason we're all here is to try and recover from this. But um, hearing RFM talk the way he did, um, and then just the context of, of Robin Williams and that, I, I do think there's just so much pain that comes from transitioning out of the church because of how much it saturates your identity. So I just wanted to say thanks to you guys. I, I know there's not really a, a huge question there, but um, I just really appreciate the work you guys do to try and help get some of that, uh, that, uh, that falsehood out of us so that we can be who we actually are. Thanks guys. Yeah, I appreciate the phone call, my friend. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, and while you were talking, uh, Robert V. Taylor put up a real appropriate line from a Robert Frost poem that I recognize is very famous. I only recognize the famous stuff from his poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. 
And now I think Bill's taking another phone call. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that tonight's episode may be a little bit different. I think it started out the way we commonly do, looking at different quotes and making yeah. comments about them. But, um, yeah, we've definitely segued into much more of a personal part of the episode. And I think that's all to the good. We can do more than just one trick. We're not just one trick ponies, are we, Bill? No, no. Diverse experience, a lot of understanding about Mormonism. Um, and I think, too, just you and I have a lot of conversations together. And so I think we we kind of grasp kind of what the other one's thinking, at least a little bit that uh, I think I think this was just a great episode. I again, it struck a lot of feelings kind of within me. Um, I thought it was a great phone call, by the way, there, too. And then now we've got Brady on the line. Brady, I think that's the name. If you uh, you're on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real, what uh, what are your thoughts? So, yeah, awesome. Um, really enjoy the podcast. Uh, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on something, talking about shame and insecurity. Um, you guys are both pretty successful, um, I'm assuming. Well, I can see. And I want to know if you think that your success, your success is somewhat attributable to your insecurity. Um, the reason why... I bring this up is because there was this article that I read. Um, it's well, it was on a book by Tiger Mother. I don't know if you know who that is. It's like a she's a, a author that that uh, she's written a couple of books. But in one book, she identified that there's like eight different cultural groups in America that succeed, uh, that outperform others, and and she identified three traits. Um, oh, by the way, Mormons were one of those eight groups. There was Jews, Mormons, Chinese. I can't remember who else. Uh, but she identified three traits, and insecurity was one of those traits that propelled, or that she uh, identified that all these groups kind of had, which she believes contributes to their success. So I just wanted to know you guys' thoughts on that. So maybe it it was some. What, what were the three of, traits? Sorry? What were the traits? So the traits that she identified were a superiority complex, insecurity, and impulse control. Mm. Okay. Do you want, if you want, I'll hang up and we'll address those. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Um, what do you attribute? You and I... Um, I don't know how people are measuring success. I don't, cause you know, I started this podcast back in 2012 in terms of Mormon discussion corporate as an entity doing a solo podcast. You came on board. What is it now? Four years ago, almost five, almost five years ago. Yeah. And, um, if we're talking like financial, I don't know that that's the measurement, but if you're talking about people respect you and I, I think some degree of insecurity, maybe I don't, you can certainly answer this question, but for me, I, I think you, I've had this conversation with you a bunch in the last couple of weeks and I've said it on the podcast. First off, I don't need to prepare anything. You really don't either. You can go off the cuff and you know this stuff well. So that's one. I think two is that you and I both, um, I'll let people be the judge, but people say that, that we have integrity, that we, we aren't, we aren't shifting back and forth. We take ground, we hold it. That ground is reasonable. It's logical. Um, we value like the data and where the truth goes. So I think integrity is a big part. Um, when it comes to insecurity and you've shared a lot of your own in tonight's episode, uh, 
when my shelf fell, my very first thought as I was kind of dealing with investigating uh, Grace from Brad Wilcox and Robert Millet and uh, uh, what's the, the believing in Christ? Um, Stephen Robinson. Stephen Robinson. As I was reading all of that stuff, the reason I was reading all that stuff, because I, I arrived at a conclusion that I'm not going to make it to the celestial kingdom, but I'll stick around because I want to help everybody else around me get there. And we walk into church and we put our white shirts on and we button them up and we go to church and we sit with our family and we smile at everybody and everybody looks so happy. Everybody looks like they've got their stuff together. And I'm in my head going like my marriage had a horrible fight last night and my kids, it was, it took me an hour and a half to get my kids ready this morning. And my, my job's not going good. I might get fired this week. And you look around and you just think everybody's nailing it because Mormonism teaches us all to pretend to each other. And when, when my, when my faith crisis happened, I just decided I didn't really want to pretend anymore. And I think when you realize like everybody feels those things, you just start to treat people who are hurting and having struggles. You treat them with, and value their humanity. And, and I think anybody who's interacted with me, I hope people sense that I deeply, I treat them with respect. I have deep respect for the human journey. Um, and as I've spent time with you, uh, this, you know, last weekend or weekend before to see you sit with people and to talk with people and give them your time and your energy. We, you mentioned last week, John DeLynn giving people his time and his energy I think what people get from those of us who are successful at shining a light on Mormonism's messiness and contradictions is this idea that, that we're, we're honest, we're vulnerable, we're authentic, we're telling the real truth about ourselves and treating others with respect and valuing that humanity. Your thoughts? My thoughts, uh, geez, I actually had some thoughts, but then I started paying attention to what you were saying. And they, 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 cause usually I, I'm, I'm trying to pretending that I'm paying attention to what you're saying and waiting until I can say what it is I'm thinking of and hold the thought, you know what I mean? But I slipped there and I was actually paying attention to you and listening to what you were saying and I forgot it. Uh, no, like I say, uh, and I've said it before, church is a place we go on Sunday to pretend we're perfect. That is one of the primary reasons uh, for the existence of church and the purposes of church. And like you said so eloquently, you go there, everybody else looks like they've got their crap together. and But you know your life's a wreck, but you're still going there to pretend that you're perfect and you're putting on your white shirt, which is emblematic of the perfection that we pretend that we have when we go to church, right? And, uh, you know, but the whole thing is, is that everybody is thinking the exact same thing that you are. Everybody else is knowing their life is a mess. Uh, if it's not today, it will be by next Sunday. And they're going there and everybody else has got it together. So we've got to pretend that we're perfect in order to fit in with everybody else who's pretending that they're perfect, which ends up being kind of an unhealthy <laughs> system. Uh, I will tell you, one of, the, one of the double binds that people in my situation get into is that we're spending all this time pretending to be somebody that we're not, right? To put on this show, this flair, this um, whatever you call it. Um, that is not really me, but it's the act that I perform in order to make up for the insufficiency that I feel I am, okay? So the problem is, is I go around and I do this, and if somebody likes me, 
then what I know is that they're not really liking me. They're liking this act I'm putting on. <laughs> so it's a total, total double bind. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. And I think, again, I'm, I'm probably rambling at this point and repeating myself, but I, I think when you see the, the human struggle of others and you realize it's, it's your struggle too, um, you just start to have more compassion for people and you won't tolerate people being abused. You won't tolerate people having shame imposed on them unnecessarily. There's enough shame imposed on us necessarily through the, the travails of life. There's enough crap that's going to happen. There's enough trauma that's going to be given to you if everybody's nice to you. Um, so when, when institutions such as Mormonism is imposing additional trauma unnecessarily and shame unnecessarily, uh, I know that you're not going to necessarily stand for it. I'm not going to stand for it. And these other voices that are respected aren't going to stand for it either. Yeah, I think um, it was Mark Twain who said that humans are the only animals that blush mm, or have any reason to. Mm, mm. Um, let's take one more caller, RFM. Okay. So this is Russ. Russ, you are the last caller for uh, Mormonism Live. Uh, before you before you share your comment, listeners, I appreciate all the comments. I just saw a lot of things, people saying that the episode was so good. Uh, thank RFM. He's the one who prepared uh, tonight's episode. Um Help us keep this going. Please go to mormonismlive.org. Click the donate button. Send a few bucks. It doesn't matter what. Three bucks, four bucks, five bucks. Uh, send us something, and uh, we'll just keep doing this for a long time. Russ, you are on the air. Close us out, my friend. What's your thoughts? Okie doke. Uh, I appreciate your folks. Uh, I appreciate, you know, it, it gives you a, a thoughtful um, uh, approach to so many difficulties. And I, I tried to... Uh, comment in the uh oh that chat thing but it wouldn't take me so i decided to call with no idea at all i'd get through but anyway this is the text of what i wrote i disagree gentlemen we don't know what we can do we are such an amalgamation of differing individual sets of genetics predispositions personal experiences etc 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 at nauseum as saint popeye a fellow who i <laughs> once said I am what I am, and that's all that I am. We may not arrive at the bar you think I can arrive, but I can arrive at what I am able to. Uh, let's, and then in the parenthesis, I said, let's back away from this hidden shame. And that mm. would be it. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's a beautiful way to close out. It is, and I do want to tell everybody, this was not easy for me. I thought... You know, it was really the answer by Sister Corden that struck me personally. And the more I thought about it, the more it struck me personally. It caused me to do a lot of introspection. And I want you to know that I have never told that story about me in Waco with my dad to anybody, including my dad, in my entire life until tonight with the exception of uh, Bill that I told it to a couple of days ago in preparation for this. And that's because it's so embarrassing to me that such a stupid little thing would have such an impact on me. And I'm 61 years old for crying out loud. And yet it's the truth. And I figure, you know, I'm, I can't be the only one who feels this way. And maybe if I talk about it, maybe it'll help clear the air. Maybe it'll help me some to just talk about this. 
And hopefully it'll help anybody else who's out there and has similar feelings in some way, even if it's only to know that you're not alone, as Edgar Allan Poe wrote. And I don't know. I can't hear Bill. Is, are, is oh, there another call I have a mute button on it? Um, somewhere in a conversation you and I had this week, or maybe last week, I don't remember which, but you mentioned my episode from a long time ago, Dark Night of the Soul. Yeah. Um, that was your best ever, I think. Yeah. And um, oh, there was, there was, uh, maybe I'm getting the wrong type. Maybe it's not the bad one. Bad days. What's that? Bad days. Oh, our bad days. That's what it was. Yeah. It was the episode, Our Bad Days. And I remember in that moment, like I, I, in my head, I knew I was articulating a more faithful position than what was going on inside of me. And I was afraid to be vulnerable with my audience because I thought they'll just leave. They're gone. They, they want somebody who's deeply on the inside helping them dissect these issues. They don't want somebody who has serious doubts. And when I was honest in that episode, I said, look, I'm articulating a position um, because I want this thing to work out and I do compartmentalize in my head. And so I'm going to give, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the best part of Mormonism and in apologetics. And, but here's how I really feel. Here's the real struggle. Um, I thought everybody would scatter. And what really happened was I got hundreds of comments from people who said, thank you for, for being honest, for being vulnerable. And it really was that moment where I started to go like, people really crave vulnerability and authenticity. And I want to be real. I don't want to fit anymore. I want to belong. I want to be me and I want to be seen and I want to be accepted. And so from that point forward, if you listen to the podcast, it tackles the issues much more forthrightly. And, and I think you've done this too, when you've talked about the molestation that happened, when you've talked about this incident with your dad tonight, when you share with your audience, which you've done numerous times as well, the honest parts of your life, marriage and divorce, for instance. Um, I think people deeply value real people being forthright and giving safe spaces to have honest and vulnerable conversations. And I've got nothing that I can add to that, Bill, well said. So uh, if you've got nothing else, then uh, I guess we can leave it up to uh, President Packer maybe one more time uh, and he can close out our show because it certainly indicates if you we all remember that talk, uh, it certainly indicated some shame that was happy to be handed out. Oh, my gosh. Yes, you're right. And, and now we claim it back and we laugh at it because we've all taken to some degree, we've all individuated and taken back our autonomy. And now we can at least chuckle a little bit at the unhealthiness of this thing. Mormonism live better than touching your own little factory. Yeah.